Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Earlier this month, the new third edition of 101 Ways to Win an Election came out. So this time my guest is co-author on that book, Ed Maxfield. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. Hello. Now, I should warn listeners, this may be a very brief podcast because I was just checking that Ed had seen some questions that I'd emailed him in advance to help get our thoughts going ahead of this recording. And Ed's reply was he wasn't sure he could answer any of them. So if there are some long silences and this is the shortest podcast ever, you will know why. Ed, it's slightly scary, Ed, to think that it's nearly a decade now since the first edition of 101 Ways of Election came out. So let's kick off with what our favourite chapters are in the book, perhaps. What's your favourite chapter in the book? It is amazing that it's nearly a decade, isn't it? Um, how time flies. And I think this was the one that I was struggling with most in terms <laughs> of actually uh, narrowing it down. How can you make me choose? You, you uh, have 101 one... favourite children. They're all... Yeah, exactly. You can't, you can't make me do that. I think where I got to in answering this question was that there's a, there's a sort of little collection of chapters near the beginning, which reinforce a message that's actually I think probably in politics as old as the hills but it's still not very well understood and acted upon which is to appreciate that you as someone who is obsessively not you personally but I mean one one is as as uh, someone who is obsessed with politics and the ins and outs of it or even just someone who frankly watches Newsnight regularly you are not a normal person in the realm of uh, of when it comes to sort of politics and that you have to 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 communicate effectively with people a broad range of people you have to start by acknowledging the volume of politics that you consume and the amount of time you spend thinking about it is vastly different uh from what most people do with their time and i think once you it, once you grasp that you can start to um to sort of shape your approach in a way that's more responsive to the general public, which after all is kind of what democracy is all about, really. So I'm going to be generous to you and say, therefore, your answer was chapter seven. <laughs> that's How very kind of you, thank you. Because I think that <laughs> is uh, probably the main chapter that captures the points that you uh, you were making. Although we talk a little bit more in that chapter as well about the balance between sort of rational argument and emotional responses and how they help shape people's reactions. And there's an example that we use in that chapter about Michael Dukakis, who ran to be US president. Uh, He was the Democrat candidate in 1988. And he was asked during that election campaign uh, his views on the death penalty, and he was opposed. And the answer that he gave uh, about being against the death penalty Uh, then triggered a question about what happened if his wife was murdered? Would he still be against the death penalty? And the problem with Dukakis's answer was not that he said, no, I'm against the death penalty. It was he gave such a dry, technocratic, unemotional answer that it just painted the picture of him as being not the sort of person lots of people wanted to vote for, as opposed to, you know, giving a, he could have given a really emotional answer about, well, look, of course, if my wife was murdered, I would have wanted to personally go around and kill the person. But there's a reason why we have a judicial system and not the law of the, you know, you can give a passionate answer. uh, And unfortunately, he gave a very dry answer and that it was that difference in emotional tone that made it such a bad answer. And it wasn't the policy detail. It was, it was the emotional tone, which I think is part of that is that if people, if you don't follow politics closely, it's the emotional tone 
makes you know has a big impact and I guess you know we're recording this just after the conclusion of the European Championships and there's a there's an obvious parallel with football there isn't there that a lot of people in Britain now have a view about Gareth Southgate the England football manager even though they don't necessarily know very much at all about what does a football manager do or what football tactics are you know millions of us have all briefly become familiar with phrases like wingbacks etc but for the non-proper football fans loads of us have now views about what we think of Gareth Southgate that is essentially a reaction to his demeanour and his tone and not a reaction to technical views on what is the relative merits of having three or four at the back just as we can react to you know a politician in an emotional way without having a technical view on their view about the Bank of England monetary policy. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's sort of, that's quite a neat way of sort of thinking about it, because I think it's it sort of splits into they two. I, I, I felt that was shoehorning a contemporary reference. In. Well, <laughs> to be to be honest, uh, as, uh, as part of my prep this morning, I was thinking, now, what? how can I work Gareth Southgate into one of my answers? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you stole on my thunder on that one. But it kind of divides it into two, doesn't it? Because, because there's, what you've just described is the kind of, in the moment thing which is that you know you become an expert in something and there's and there's a kind of varying degree of expertness both in yourself and in your audience depending on where you are in the electoral cycle in our case or the football tournament if you're thinking about England and there's also something else which is that I think most of the people who will want to read our book will read our book because they want voters to change their behaviour. You know, if you, uh, uh, I don't want to put anyone off reading the book, obviously, or buying the book. But if you're already sitting sitting on a, a massive stack of votes, um, there's probably less of an incentive than if you're thinking, I'm a challenger and I need to yeah. win next time and, and, and shift some people into changing their behaviour as a result. And I think, so I think the other thing, as well as that kind of in the moment, difference between experts and non-experts and temporary experts there's also that thing about just appreciating how difficult it is to engage with people and get them to change their minds and there's the stuff that I mean you know credit where it's due I think you know you brought especially to the book around um, heuristics and shortcuts that people use and also just just the sort of broader thing about well it's just the way that we've always voted <laughs> however however you know the best predictor of someone's future voting inter- intentions is their past voting intentions so all, there's all, so there's also all of that stuff as well you know that that sense that well why why are they not convinced by my logical argument because surely it's logical um, and anyone can see that well the truth of the matter is because of that lack of engagement a lack of a sense that it really matters to their every waking moment that most people will use shortcuts to make their decisions. And it's yeah. and, it, and, and it grasping that, I think, as well. Extending the football analogy uh, a little bit further, there's a good example of this with the England football players sort of taking the knee at the beginning of matches. When this first started happening, the op- opinion polling showed that it was a, fair, a re- fairly controversial decision. But the polling has has significantly shifted in favour of the public supporting uh, England football players taking the knee. And I think that's probably been driven by two things, none of which are directly related to the substance of the issue about racism and 
what does taking the knee symbolize and is it an effective measure and so on. one is simply the team has been successful and therefore if the team has been successful and the team is therefore more popular there's an inferred credibility that therefore oh well if these people I like who seem to be good at their job and know what they're doing are doing this then maybe what they're doing is a good thing to do so there's a there's that inferred credibility and of course this happens a lot in politics doesn't it that which politician or which party supports a policy measure can make a big difference to whether or not people think the policy measure is right or wrong and the other I think thing that we've seen is that just that socialization as it were that the more that you see people who in some way you relate to doing something the more you can end up finding that being a reasonable thing that you want to support as well. And that's, again, the analogy with politics is that's why things like getting posters up in windows or having content shared widely on social media by supporters and so on, all of those sorts of things give an inferred credibility as well, that, well, if loads of people think this is the right thing to do, then maybe it is. Of course, there will be some good diehard contrarians who therefore think, well, if everyone thinks this is right, I'm bound to think it's wrong. But then overall, it, it does seem to benefit being popular. There was a, a really, I think, a really interesting moment in last night's game, actually, where and I haven't quite worked out what the political parallel is here, but whereas I th- where I think the the moment of real change came when the Italian team took the knee as well last night, and you could you could sort of sense that the crowd was surprised, mm. and there was instead of booing there was applause, mm. and I think it's I mean maybe it's I don't know I, I, it's rather it sounds rather belittling to talk about it being third party endorsement because mm. you know the the. The, the Italians didn't just do it because they wanted to endorse what the England squad were doing by any means. But there's that, it's, it is that sort of normalisation, socialising thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it and, and the, you know, the idea that you, you build support by showing that there's support is something really interesting, isn't it? And, and you know, and, and credit to them, whatever, whatever you think about taking the knee, credit to the, to the England squad for, for, for sticking with it and saying, we're going to keep doing this because we think we're right. And actually they won over I suspect, well, you've quoted the polling evidence, but there's a sense of them having won, won people over as a result of that, which um, no doubt PhD theses will be written about in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be interesting, interesting too. For all that sports, people in sports often like saying that politics and sports should be kept separate. Actually, I think there's a real interrelationship between the two because sports get it gets into everyday people's everyday lives and their attention in the way that politics struggled to which which brings us back to why you picked that sort of group of chapters as your favorite um i'm just trying to think which is i think i probably and i promise ed i have looked at all chapters in coming to this but i think i'd pick chapter one as my favorite <laughs> which i know makes it sound like you've not done your homework and therefore we just but no genuinely because this is what we've got in this book is a completely new batch of chapters up front written completely fresh from scratch about campaign strategy and I think the previous two editions were very much into tactics and a little bit light on strategy so we've tried to remedy that with some completely new chapters and the first one about just thinking through whether your campaign is about trying to mobilize your own supporters because there are enough of them out there to win or whether it's about having to persuade people who support someone else to switch to join you is it fundamentally mobilisation or persuasion? Obviously, campaigns are not normally 100% one and zero the other, but they are normally very heavily tilted one way or the other. So working out which way is your tilt, I think is really important 
both for running campaigns, but also if you're just following politics, it's a way of understanding what politicians and campaigns are, are up to. And I think there's a particularly good contrast at the moment between the Clinton, Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, which seemed to be very heavily focused on mobilization, and the Joe Biden campaign, which was much more focused on persuasion. And that, you know, Biden essentially tried to be as inoffensive as possible to many swing Republicans in a way that I think frustrated some on the Democrat side, but did result in electoral victory. You know, you can see you can see the difference that he managed to make in appealing to sort of soft Republicans and winning them over compared with with Clinton. And, and it does also make me think of there is a wider point that if you follow political campaigning, it's hard to avoid ending up following what happens in the US. And there is a slightly odd eulogizing in US sort of political campaigning commentary of campaigns and candidates who lose. You know, there's a lot of stuff over the years about the likes of Howard Dean or Bernie Sanders, both of whom ran to be the Democrat candidate for president. They didn't even get to be the Democrat candidate, let alone then win a public election against the Republicans. And in a way, their campaign, or Andrew Yang as well. You know, Andrew Yang has got lots of people excited about his what he was doing and and and, and his campaign and so on, but he you know, he didn't didn't even get close to winning the New York Democrat primary really in the end, although he had a brief period as as, as front runner. Um, and but I think there is this odd, those sorts of campaigns do seem to attract a lot of praise and attention often because they're coming from being a complete outsider to outsider to being a contender who doesn't quite make it but still fundamentally it means a lot of attention goes to those who end up losing and I think campaigns like Joe Biden's tend to get less plaudits there are less exciting you know bestseller books written about how you can apply the lessons from Biden's camp you know a Biden type campaign to other campaigning and so on but when a campaign like that wins, that's an important reason to think that maybe we should give this a bit more attention. So I quite like chapter one for our opportunity to give that sort of campaign that's successful but normally neglected in commentary a bit more attention. Yes, uh, I mean, something that popped into my head when um, uh, when you were talking about that was 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 also to sort of think about motivations as well, actually, mm. and politics electoral politics is a very kind of binary game isn't it you win or you lose and the margins are tiny um in either direction often i feel but, but to insert at this point the cheshire Manamisham majority wasn't tiny <laughs> I, know your, I, I i get your point definitely but the but the but there's there's also something about we i, th I think when we sat down all those years ago and thought about who are we writing this book for I guess initially we were thinking about it being for candidates, but but there's there's so many other roles and so much else that comes out of politics and goes into it too, that all of those losing campaigns were in different ways. In, I mean, as you said, interesting because they were innovative and they were outsiders. And there's, there's, there's things that you get out of election campaigns and things that you achieve that are not always reflected in just the final result. Mm. And I think that's that's not really quite the point that you were making, but I think it does kind of what the point that you made does kind of highlight that, that yeah, for sure, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's vitally important to win an election if you want to, uh, well, uh, for, either for personal reasons or, or because you want to introduce a wide ranging policy change, that's critically important. 
but also there's ways of shifting the narrative that you that you can achieve by your participation in politics i think um so it's uh, if i've got a point at all in that it's that it's that you know you, you the, there's there's it's it's worth being involved in and for 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 more than just the glory of uh, being a winning candidate i think thing that runs through a few of our chapters is this question about the difference between viewing a political campaign as a soapbox from which you can tell other people what you think is right and implicitly therefore also how they're wrong if they're not voting for you versus seeing a campaign as an exercise in humility in terms of wanting to persuade people to change their minds in order to win their votes if they've not voted for you before and therefore the difference between those two approaches is fundamentally one of if you lose is your gut reaction the voters were wrong or i was wrong is it is the response that oh the voters are stupid or evil or racist or whatever or is it what you know what did i get wrong how can i yeah what do i learn better in yeah history? yeah I, I think that's absolutely the theme of of of, of um, the whole book really isn't it that it, it's about it's about learning isn't it mm. and um understanding understanding what you've achieved trying to understand if you didn't achieve exactly everything that you wanted to achieve why that was and then adapting and changing so you achieve more next time yeah absolutely yeah and and i think there's a question there which the book i guess maybe tees up but doesn't really try to answer because it's about politics in general about the relative merit of pragmatism in in seeking to achieve particular policy ends that you know the, the sort of as far as campaigning goes the message from our book isn't it is very much uh, you have to be willing to compromise with the voters because in the end the voters are the one who's ones who cast the verdict in the ballot box there's at the end of the day there's no point thinking the voters are wrong because and and they're and sort of just feeling sort of superior about that because the voters are the ones who get to cast the verdict you've got to change the voters views and, and there's a bigger question in politics about to what extent should you compromise on your principles or not um, and partly because i've just been listening to an audiobook william Hague's excellent biography of william wilberforce the question about the abolition of slavery and the slave trade in early 19th century, let there be those campaigning late 18th and then early 19th century, Britain comes to mind as an example that one of the ways that the slave trade was abolished was by in in Britain, you know, and, and Britain's participation in it was was abolished was by agreeing to pay slave owners significant financial compensation. And I always think there's a there's a really interesting debate about whether paying compensation to slave owners was a brilliant act of principle or a horrible dirty act of pragmatism that's normally painted as a rather dirty act of pragmatism of you know slave owners or who've done such horrible evil things inflicted such pain on others why on earth would you give them money that that is just a horrible dirty messy bit of pragmatism but i think there's an argument that it was actually the principled approach as well which was one of the sooner you can end slavery the better if people every day are suffering from the existence of the slave trade and the slavery the sooner you can get a measure through to abolish part of that the better and therefore being willing to pay up some money 
essentially to pay off people to get it through. That's the act of principle. That's the act of putting, tackling with slavery first. And it's people who sat in their comfortable theoretical ivory towers who might not want to dirty their hands, who are actually the people who are not not having as their number one principle, how do we deal with this evil? You know, obviously there are good arguments you can make on both sides as to whether that that payoff, those payoffs were were the right thing to do or not. But again, that gets into this question of is this about the purity of your own position or is it about compromising with reality in order to get things changed? I, I feel like there's there's another book, um, 101 Ways to Win a Single Issue Campaign, um, which we... Uh, <laughs> uh, which we should add 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 to the list next. Um, yeah, and I think the other thing. I, I mean, uh, <laughs> when I was thinking about which chapter, I thought, oh well, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps from a sort of dirty marketing point of view, I should choose the final chapter so that everyone reads all of the others uh, first. Um, and uh, thinking about the those those sort of pairings of chapters that we have towards the end, where we talk about well, what to do if you win and what to do if you lose. And I suppose it was partly in my mind because the, the, there's. Uh, certainly in the UK, there's been a, a fairly sort of clattering end uh, to uh, one prominent political career fairly recently. Um, and just sitting back and thinking, you know, I wonder I wonder what's going through Matt Hancock's head right now and what he's thinking about the rest of his life. And that was, I mean, that's that's the nature of politics. It's every, essentially, there's the, there's the, the old line about every political career ending in failure um and that idea of just really understanding what your motivations are and where this kind of fits into your life um and you know as i said to a very tearful 13 year old last night after england inevitably lost on penalties it's okay you know the sun will shine tomorrow well, actually it isn't it's pretty gloomy but <laughs> But the sun will shine. And, making a promise that you didn't deliver on. Yeah, it. no, I know. Well, I couldn't quite bring myself to say, don't worry, they'll win the next championship because I'm not entirely sure they will. But but they've got a chance. Um, no, you know, that whole sort of life goes on thing and understanding where politics fits into, um, fits into your life and uh, what you can achieve with it. Um, I think that's really important too. Yeah, and and, and it, it brings to mind this curious phrase about career politicians. And that is used always as a criticism. A career politician is a bad thing, which is odd in a way. If you were facing surgery and you went <laughs> to the hospital and the surgeon said hello to you and said, I'm a career surgeon, I've been doing this all my life. I'd think, great. Well, actually, I, I would think great. And then I would remember having listened to a Freakonomics podcast episode many years ago about how inexperienced doctors have make fewer mistakes because they're less sure. So so I would rather perversely then say, oh, that's lovely. Could Who's the most inexperienced colleague we could though get, get to treat me instead? But fundamentally, that little quirk aside, in in most areas of activity, saying I'm a career X, is seen as a good thing. Now, yeah. If a climate change scientist is being quizzed on their views about global warming, and they were, it wouldn't be an attack on them to say, "Well, you're a career scientist," and you know, clearly, it's it's a good thing in that sense, in terms of expertise. It's a good thing to have many, and yet with politics, it's somehow seen as a, such a mixed, even bad thing to have years and years of experience that the phrase career politician doesn't need 
extra words added to it to make it clear whether you're using it as a as praise or criticism because it's always used as criticism and one of the other questions that you um you pinged over to me uh was looking back over the course of 10 years or whatever what have i learned mm. and the thing that i i sort of alighted on in thinking about that was um about teamwork actually which is kind of relevant to what you were just saying um not so much in terms of capacity which is where i think you know if, if you'd asked um ed of 10 or 20 years ago uh, i'd have said yeah absolutely you need a big team because you need to deliver an absolute ton of leaflets <laughs> you can't deliver that you can't deliver them all on your own um i think a slightly more uh worldly wise and experienced ed would say yeah you need a team because of the blend of experience because you don't know all of the answers and to sort of bring it back to your surgery thing uh perhaps the perfect solution would be to have an inexperienced um surgeon with a uh doing the actual operation but with an experienced surgeon standing over their shoulder um uh, either either literally or virtually uh in terms of their uh, you know in, in terms of their uh, the, the learning that they will have done uh and that that sort of blend of knowledge and experience i think is quite important i mean to success in any kind of field i guess yeah and shoehorning what i think we should promise to make our last football analogy <laughs> into this <laughs> that is of course one of the controversies over penalty taking is whether to what extent you should rely on experience in picking who your penalty takers should be versus current performance and, and, and level of raw talent, what the mixes of the two that you should most look for in deciding who your penalty takers are. But before we get on to suggesting that in future the England football team's list of penalty takers should be decided by an STV ballot uh, of season ticket fans, uh, <laughs> let's let's move on to, you've, you've touched on a bit about you know, what you've learned over the last sort of decade and more uh, of, of sort of political campaigning, what do you think has changed most in the outside world? Because when we, we did a podcast with Bikeback, the publishers, 101 Ways to Win an Election on this, I guess I gave a slightly negative, sort of slightly downbeat answer about a version of being caught openly lying doesn't matter as much now as it used to for politicians. And I think there is, I do have, I guess, a reflecting on that answer, a slightly more positive view on it, which is, I think, that a lot of the problems we are seeing with politics at the moment are common or have been previously common in times of economic hardship. And so I'm not sure that the problem is necessarily what's happening with politics, as opposed to a broader question about wealth and inequality and economic growth, that it's the state of the economy that's the real issue and also the solution, as opposed to, and and, and some of what we're seeing in politics, therefore being the symptoms. Um, but I get, even even that is still a relatively downbeat view. So do you have any, any more optimistic takes on what's changed in the last decade? Well, I think, uh... I mean, the, 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 the two most striking sort of external changes for me have to be um, the rise of populism, which may or may not be a different way of expressing your, <laughs> your point. Um, 
and the uh, and, and certainly the sort of related sort of breakdown in in some of those uh, old party loyalties, which I sort of hinted at about the way the shortcuts that people make to make their choices. Um, you know, there, there, there seems to be lots of evidence that over the course of you know maybe even forty years um, uh, across sort of Western democracies, um, that the, 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 there's a, there's a breakdown in 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 old party loyalties, which is a huge opportunity, I guess, for anyone who wants to, to um, grab grab it um, in terms of winning elections. The other one. Uh, uh, is just the development in communication technology. Uh, you know, I said about you need a big team because you need to deliver thousands of leaflets. Um, I, I, I'm pretty convinced you still need to do that. But there's also lots of other ways um, that people communicate with each other uh, uh, now, which are uh, gaining importance and and are changing the way that it's not. They're not just different channels. Mm. Um, but they're actually changing the way that people have conversations and, and live their lives, actually. Um, yeah, so... there's a question about the extent to which that has fundamentally changed the nature of politics, particularly the rise of online campaigning. Um, and there's an analogy I always used to use quite a lot about if you compare the music industry with the telephone industry and how each of them have been impacted by the rise of the Internet, the music industry has been massively altered. The, the basic way that you make money out of being a musician or being in some way in the music industry has changed hugely. Uh, on the other hand, the telephone industry has in one sense changed a lot. The rise of the mobile phone, the decline of the public phone box, for example. But fundamentally, the economics of the phone industry is the same, that you have a very small number of large companies in some cases, only one, and it's a nationalised company, but you have a, a small number of big players who make their money out of charging monthly fees. Now, 30, 40 years ago, that would often have been one nationalised phone company, maybe a bit more than 40 years ago, but one nationalised phone company, and the monthly fee was for a landline. These days, it will often be a handful of different privatised uh, private mobile phone operators, but still a monthly fee that, that the basic economics of the phone industry has stayed the same in a way that the basic economics of the music industry hasn't. And I think with politics, the method has changed hugely, but I don't think it has really opened up a completely new form of, of politics in the way that I guess some of the evangelists for the use of the internet in politics were originally hoping um, that it would. And it strikes me that maybe digital developments have made politics more volatile because it's easier for a new party or a new candidate to take off and to generate lots of income very quickly or sign up lots of supporters very quickly all that sort of stuff is much easier when it's web forms and emails rather than checks and postage and envelopes but fundamentally the pattern of politics i think has has survived the internet rather less changed perhaps than most people would have expected when we we're first thinking about writing the first edition of this book. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it may alter um, things uh, over the longer term uh, as the way that we interact as individuals within society changes, but you're absolutely right. And, and you know, to sort of pick up your telephone company uh, analogy, 
Um, obviously, what has changed enormously is that um, nobody, nobody under the age of 40 makes phone calls anymore. Um, it's, it's all about um, social media and text message and, and, and what have you. So although you're absolutely right, the, the structure, the over, uh, overarching structure is still the same. The pricing structure is still the same. Um, uh, what they're doing for the fee is very different. And I think from the point of view of um, our book, if you like, and the, and the topics that we're trying to cover with the book, um, understanding that, the impact of that delivery, uh, the changes in delivery is, is important um, um, just because there are so many, so many different channels out there. And, and I think, you know, to pick up that old joke about, um, I know that half of my marketing budget works, but I don't, just don't know which half. Um, there's something there as well um, about the kind of digital communications revolution which is that we kind of know it's important, but we, I don't know if anyone's quite figured out in what ways it's important and which bits are more important than others. Um, so there's still a lot of learning to be done, I think, on that. Yeah, and we quite heavily rewrote several of the chapters to do with online campaigning, which I think three of them probably were basically rewritten completely from scratch. The thing that struck me in when we were doing that was that although the details needed a lot of updating. Like it's no longer innovative to attach photos to an email that you send to a journalist, you know. So a lot yep. of the details needed significant updating. The basic principles have remained pretty much the same. And so what we did in those chapters was definitely more than delete, flicker, insert Instagram. <laughs> but I think if you were to take the first edition of our book, and to say, okay, how can I apply this to the current day? Those internet chapters would still be useful. It'd be a bit more of a struggle because it'd be like you were reading it in another language. You'd have to translate <laughs> some of the references, but the basic outlook and approach I think is, is very much the same. In that sense, I think what has made more changed in the chapters is us hopefully getting to be better authors at our third attempt at <laughs> covering the topic, but I think we're, we're clearer about what really matters. And we've obviously had feedback from very kind readers of the first two editions as well that have helped with that. But I was struck how the basic principles have aged pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, the, there's, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, maybe maybe we should do another podcast in 40 in another 40 years time to see uh, to see how <laughs> uh how uh, how the environment has changed um because i guess yeah. these things i, I guess the, i guess the point i guess the point is that still quite you know internet campaigning is still quite new i mean it's only 21 years since the first candidate website in a british election to take donations online um so that, if, if anyone who's listening to this is, say, a teenager, that may feel like a long time. But to our older <laughs> listeners, that, you know, that is a relatively brief period of time. If you think about histories of politics and political campaigning and periods that they talk about, you know, it is, it's, it's not that long a span of time in the overall history and development of politics, political campaigning or political society uh, more generally. But maybe just to sort of wrap up then, 
and we've obviously talked quite a lot about our book go go on go and buy it please please go and buy it <laughs> but apparently there are other books out there as well so if if anyone wants to read more about some of the issues that we've touched on in this podcast or in the book what what would you recommend to the med other than the slightly egotistical read our book well I think there's 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 quite a few uh, books that we specifically mention uh, as influencing us and uh, our and our approach. Uh, and I so <laughs> buy our book and, and read it so you can find out what those what those are. I guess would be <laughs> books. Excellent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Really trying to ingratiate ourselves with any booksellers who are listening at the yeah. moment. <laughs> The, 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 there's a the, one uh, which I never miss an opportunity to uh, mention is uh, the book called uh, "Putting Voters in Their Place" by a couple of uh, political geographers, mm. um, which, uh, for the first time for me, very very clearly explained why, in a UK context, if you had two otherwise identical voters, one living in the north and one living in the south why one of them would be inclined to vote Conservative and one would be inclined to vote Labour. And that's to do with a whole set of things about social norms and networks and all that sort of stuff. Um, interesting that, that, that assumption, those assumptions might now have flipped completely on their heads. Mm. But, but that was, it was that thing about yeah. a sort of understanding where voters sit within a, within a, within a network. That that's my that's my kind of go-to point really, and it comes right back to the point that I made right at the beginning actually of our conversation, which is to understand that uh, human beings, in, when it comes to political choices, are not sort of overtly um, rational calculating machines. Their influences are a lot more fuzzy and diffuse mm. and multifaceted um, than we might think um and that thinking about how to connect with those networks and uh understand where the voters come from i think is a really important thing yeah um so that's that's mine what's yours which well i was trying to think what would i pick and i i guess because obviously we condense a lot of knowledge from other books into our own book but i think one book that we don't reference but i think implicitly is making the same case that we do, is Dale Carnegie's old classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because I think that, and although the examples in Dale Carnegie's book have aged quite heavily, um, and it's a little while since I read it, so I suspect there are also probably some sexist stereotypes in there as well, given, given the age of the book. But I think with those sort of health warnings, the essential point of his book which is if you want other people to like you think about what you can do to change yourself in a way is very similar to the essential message of our book which is if you want voters to vote for you think about what you need to do to earn and deserve their votes and so there's a that sort of sense of starting from a point of view of humility which I think is common between the two but also successful not just successful politicians, but if you want to be a successful campaign manager or a successful volunteer organiser in a campaign, you know, 
being able to win friends and influence people are quite good general skills. And I think a lot of the general advice in, in, in Dale Carnegie's book is still very relevant, even if it is also, when you look at it now, a book that in some ways is very much a book of its time, which I think was the 1930s. I'm just going to reach for my copy of it and see when was it actually and that she realized it was that old printed uh oh no 1950 i know yeah 1936 this wow. edition that i've got was first printed in 1953 but it's copyright dale carnegie 1936 um now there's there's an interesting little exercise for such as king george the <laughs> fifth excellent there's an interesting little exercise there for someone to go and see which are the kind of books of um, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, uh, which contain nuggets of enduring truth, which, uh, which should inform our approach to this. Yeah, and there is there are a few sort of, I think, almost forgotten classics like that. There is a, an amazingly good study called The Psychology of Rumour, which was based on research done into dealing with sort of deliberate misinformation and rumours circulated by the enemy during the Second World War. So the military had a lot of interest in how do you tackle rumour and misinformation. And now, but the book is really relevant to thinking about fake news and online misinformation now. And it is just some of the examples are eerily prescient of the sorts of challenges we now face, even though it is much more rooted in the context of uh, wartime and the military, as opposed to sort of peacetime and social media. Um, it is unfortunately quite hard to get hold of. It took me ages to, to find a second-hand copy that was at a not too eye-watering price. If I remember <laughs> the treat I gave myself after, after. <laughs> it was still not that not that cheap but definitely worth anyone who has access to a library worth hunting out a copy it's a really interesting read and you can take it as either an optimistic or a pessimistic read because the parallel in terms of nasty racist misinformation between the 1940s and the present day you could either take as a very depressing persistence of a horrible problem in society or maybe a slightly reassuring that what's happening now isn't some horrible awful new departure but is maybe a long-standing problem in new clothes so so society isn't maybe quite diving off a cliff uh, so you can you can use it as a personality test on yourself as well as to whether you, you view the book as fundamentally an optimistic or pessimistic one but yeah yeah Dale Carnegie's book I'm just having it, it, it it's these examples I'm just leafing it through now are very are very dated uh let me just give you the opening line of chapter six. I was waiting in line to register a letter at the post office on the corner of 38th Street and 8th Avenue in New York. I noticed that the clerk appeared to be bored with the job, weighing envelopes, handing out stamps, making change, issuing receipts. That doesn't feel like that's a book that was published today, does it? But that's <laughs> it. Basic principles in the book have aged really well. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. I might skip the psychology of rumour one, given how hard it is to find. So, but, well, but, but the, the, I, I'm putting you on the spot. Do you, do, are, you, are you able to recall uh, what he did and what benefit he gleaned from, from his uh, newfound relationship with the person who was issuing stamps? 
<laughs> well, one of the, I was going to say, I'm not sure I dare reveal the things I feel I've learned from the book because people will then have fun trying to spot me applying those lessons in future conversations with them. But definitely, I think there's lots of useful, useful stuff in there. Um, and let me just find an example. Here we go. So the end of part one, he has in a nutshell, a summary of three principles. Uh, fundamental techniques in handling people. Number one, don't criticize, condemn or complain. Number two, give honest and sincere appreciation. Number three, arouse in the other person an eager want. Now that language of principle three is a little bit antiquated, but actually that applies really well to political campaigning. You want, you need to give voters a real reason to vote for you. You need to put yourself as the answer to a problem that they recognize and understand and think is important and think is fixable. I, I, I might have a t-shirt printed with arouse in the other person and eager want. I think that is a great campaign slogan. That's, 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 that's on a par with it's the economy stupid, I reckon, that, uh, for, for me. Absolutely. So definitely <laughs> recommend the Dale Carnegie book. Definitely recommend our own book and I'll include also putting voters in their place which is a little bit dated now but as you say is a really good analysis of British politics one of the authors recently died sadly yes so he did there's no I, I don't for often I'd hope that there might be a new edition of the book one day but sadly yeah if that's not gonna get it's not now, but still well worth the read so thank you so much for that right. it's been really interesting pleasure with you thank you for being a a co-author I think the fact that we've managed three three editions means we must uh, we must be able to just about tolerate each other <laughs> so, <laughs> no, thank you for that seriously ed uh, and thank you to everyone for listening look out in the show notes for follow-up links uh, for the various books and other things we've referred to and people can find ed on twitter at maxfield ed myself at mark pack and this podcast at bar chart podcast and if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.